You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode, and here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here today with Michael Wade, who is a professor of innovation and strategy at IMD the uh, well-known business school over there in Lausanne, Switzerland. And you come to me today from Lausanne. He's also the co-author of a bunch of books, most recently, Alien Thinking, The Unconventional Path to Breakthrough Ideas, co-authored with a couple of your colleagues. Also the author of a couple other books, co-author of a couple other books, one called Orchestrating Transformation and The Digital Vortex. Welcome, Michael. Thank you, Greg. I'm very pleased to be here. So, The other two books that I mentioned, those are deep dives into digital transformation. And I think that, you know, at IMD, you and your colleagues have created a fairly comprehensive suite of courses around digital transformation that you offer to business folks. And of course, you do a lot of work with companies. But this book here, I think Alien Thinking, it's a little bit more general. There's lots of talk within the book about the importance of digital, but I think of it more as a a general approach to thinking, a general approach to innovation, one which obviously in today's world is going to require digital, but this book could have been written 50 years ago or hundred years. I mean, it could have, it has this kind of general applicability. Was this your intent? Do you, do you find yourself becoming more general and more abstract and more universal as you go through your career as a researcher and teacher? And is that intentional? Because a lot of academics, you know, become narrower and and more and more applied. I think probably, Greg, it's the opposite with me. I had very much a traditional academic career path. I was a professor in the MIS area. Way back when, I was really interested in digital things before it was called digital. But I did find, I have to tell you, that I felt a little bit constrained in a traditional university environment where, you know, you're kind of pigeonholed into a department. My department was the MIS department. So if I wanted to do marketing or strategy or leadership, I was kind of, you know, locked out to a certain extent. So when I went to IMD, I mean, IMD, for for your listeners and viewers, if you don't know us, you know, we're really focused on executive education. Uh, Greg, you've been to IMD, you've taught with us, you know what it's like. So it's really executive education. We don't have departments. Uh, So we really, we can follow whatever we want to do. So my, my core area of interest is digital transformation and disruption. I run a research center at IMD on that topic. I teach a bunch of courses. As you say, we have, I think we have more than a dozen courses for executives on that topic. I'm involved in some of those, but I also have other interests. And one of those interests, and and it's been around for a long time for me, is innovation and creativity, not only in business, but also in life. So this was a bit of a side project, but one that that I really enjoyed doing. And I think the surprising thing to me is that even though we have the tools available to us more so than ever before, we're not more innovative or creative than ever before. In fact, we may be less than in the past. So I wanted to explore that, why that was the case, and try and figure out how we could help people to tap into their 
innovative natures and their creativity. And that's what the book is about. Behind me here, I've got this little green screen there in, in, you know, in solidarity with the alien theme of the book. You say in the book that obviously about what it means to be an alien thinker, and it's a nice acronym. You, know, you say at the very beginning of the book that no one wants to be an, an alien thinker. And I'm coming from Silicon Valley, where I get the sense that everybody wants to be an alien thinker. You know, there's probably 100 books out there teaching people you know, how to be more innovative and, and creative. And in the book, you make an effort to distinguish your approach from, you know, design thinking and, and lean startup and agile and all of these movements that they seem to be in support of a lot of the initiatives that you promote, right? Like becoming more creative, thinking outside of the box, right? Edward de Bono, you know, recently passed away and he was famous for thinking laterally. And those ideas I think are, are super popular. Do you think that interaction with companies, working with real executives and, and real companies rather than startups, does this sort of help shape your thinking a bit and, you know, help you to see the real obstacles out there to being an alien thinker? Yes, I think that's exactly right. We work with a lot of traditional companies. And those companies do struggle to be innovative and the people within them struggle to be creative. And I think the methodologies that you mentioned have tremendous value in helping people to do more creative things. Any kind of fixed methodology is tricky because when you need it, you forget it. You're not in a space for creative thought. You don't have post-it notes at hand. You forget the different steps that you have to follow. So. I think for us, process of being creative and innovative is more, more a mindset than it is a set of you know, fixed steps and methods. And, and I think the other thing that we spend quite a bit of time talking about in the book is not just coming up with the idea, but then transforming it into a breakthrough solution. And so many great ideas just hit the wall of the organization, you know, to take a virus methodology, right? They just get rejected by the corporate immune system. So navigating is a really important part of the innovation process, which is maybe not dealt with in, in that much depth with some of the other methodologies out there. No, I agree with you. So the N in alien stands for, for navigating. And I found that part to be, even though it's sort of tucked at the end of the book, I think that was probably the most important part of the book, at least coming from my perspective. You know, we at UC Berkeley, we have as part of our motto, we teach our students, you know, question the status quo and so forth. And, and I like to think that what we're doing is we're sending our, our students off on a suicide mission because when you send them off to certain companies with this question the status quo imperative, they're going to be swarmed and attacked by the white blood cells of all the existing, you know, structures and so forth. And, and so a lot of students are just like, okay, I'll solve that problem. I'll just go start my own company. And of course, you know, the vast majority of them do wind up working for large companies. And so are they equipped with those tools? But before we jump into kind of all, all the different kind of pieces of alien thinking, you know, you're in the education business and you do these kind of executive immersions. You oftentimes will have them come to Lausanne or you'll even bring them to Silicon Valley or you, know, you talk about companies that have these immersions. And in my experience, when people spend a week or even, you know, a couple days a week over an extended period of time immersed in an environment where this type of thinking is, is promoted and talked about, you know, people get so energized and so optimistic, but then when they go back to work, it becomes very difficult for them to hold on to what they've learned. How can a book like this kind of help people to kind of stay in that mindset and stay in that mode? 
once they've learned the alien approach, which we'll, again, we'll talk about, how does, how do you make it stick? What do you need to have in your back pocket so that you don't drift back to old ways of thinking? Yeah, I think it's a great question. I think having the, the alien stages kind of in your back pocket, it's not that much to remember is a good idea. But the, the thing about all the alien stages, and we'll get to those later, they're all natural. They're all within us anyway. So it's not like you have to learn a new skill or practice a new trade. It's, it's, it's just stuff you do naturally. It's stuff you do as a kid. It's stuff that you do when you're relaxed. It's stuff you do when you go into a new situation. It's just kind of tapping into that at the right time. Uh, so it's really not new skill. It's just tapping into the skills that you already have at the right time. And, and talking about the education approach, what we try to do as much as possible is put people outside their comfort zones. One of the big reasons that people are not as innovative or as creative as they could be is that they never go out of their comfort zone. And when you're in your comfort zone, you know, your senses are not heightened. You're not in that learning mode. And the same is true with you know, trips to Silicon Valley. Google has whole departments to welcome executives flying in from wherever, you know, and you get to go and you try the ice cream and you go and you walk around the campus and jump on the bikes. You know, this is not outside your comfort zone. I remember a, a trip that we organized a few years ago for a very traditional European company. The plans originally, ah, everybody's going to go out there. We're going to stay in a nice hotel. We're going to take a nice cushy limo. You know, we'll see all the great companies in Silicon Valley. And I said, no, 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 wait a minute, let's do it a different way. So we started out and the whole theme was outside your comfort zone. So we started out flying all economy, right? All in economy from Germany to San Francisco, you know, that flight and putting them in a, you know, a hotel in Tenderloin. People doing the budget love, love this aspect of it. And they had them share rooms and share beds. Could you imagine actually sharing king size beds? So, so they very much, the whole theme was that. And when they're outside their comfort zone, suddenly, you know, their senses are, are heightened and, and they're learning stuff. And that's really the beginning of this alien thinking process is, is paying attention to the world around you. And, and that's one of the reasons we, ch we chose the metaphor of the alien, because you can imagine, Greg, an alien comes down to Earth that alien sees everything for the first time. And, and, and so everything's new, but we lose that. We completely lose that. So, you know, the, um, the expression deja vu. So deja vu is you look at something, you think I've seen that before. I'm sure I've seen that before, right? You get that sense of deja vu. We want people to have the opposite of that, right? We want people to have the, and train themselves to be the opposite of that. So let's call it Vuja Day. For, for the sake of argument, right? So Vuja Day is looking at something you see every single day, but as if you were seeing it for the first time. And when you're paying attention to the world around you in that way, you're seeing things that can really, you can use as a starting point for a great creative idea. Yeah, I mean, I think that we, we try to um, minimize our, our cognitive efforts and cognitive load, and we put things into pre-existing frameworks and avoid anything that requires us to think too hard. And so the first thing that you talk about in thinking is attention, right? The A stands for attention. And I think that kind of the design thinking cycle that everyone talks about at IDEO at, you know, the D school and here at Berkeley, you know, also begins with observation. They're similar, but I think you make a few distinctions between that. And, you know, when I talk to MBA students from 10 years ago, and I asked them, like, what'd you learn in business school? They'll often, no one's going to say, well, I learned how to do discounted cash flow, right? <laughs> I've never had that happen. Never. You usually get these very high level insights. And, and one that I got recently from someone was, I learned how to zoom in 
and, and zoom out. And I thought that when you talked about attention, you said that there's two, in fact, all of the letters have kind of these dyads and one of them was zoom in, zoom out. And then the other one was like change your focus, which is kind of like different position. And those are, I thought were great kind of physical spatial metaphors for what we're doing when we reorient ourselves. Exactly right. So zoom in, zoom out. We don't do that enough. Switch focus. Imagine what the world would be like if you were blind or if you were a child or if you were an immigrant. And and that can give you insights. So there's a story we tell in the book about, I think it was Kellogg's, you know, the food company, and, and they were trying to come up with a new snack for kids and they were having a hard time, but they knew they had to go and talk to people. So they went and talked to the kids they talked to the, the parents and, and whatnot and tried to understand the patterns and they watched them and they just couldn't get that insight. And eventually somebody suggested, well, why don't you go and talk to the janitors? And they never thought about talking to janitors. Why would you talk to those guys? They're kind of in the background. But in fact, janitors, they know exactly what gets thrown away. They know what food gets traded. They know what food gets eaten. And so they're actually a great source of insight. So, you know, switching focus and trying to get insights from these non-traditional characters can be a great source of inspiration. Well, it's interesting because I think design thinking approach would tell you, go talk to the customers and observe the customers. And uh, that's really going to be your primary source of kind of information and, and I think what you're saying is that information can come from anywhere. What I liked about this is how you ultimately combine it with the data approach, right? So in data science, we talk about hypothesis-driven inquiry versus kind of data-driven discovery. You know, a lot of the design thinking approaches are really, you know, hypothesis-driven, right? You kind of go and you look for stuff and, you know, you're open-minded about what you're going to discover, but you're kind of more focused in, in where you're going. Whereas data-driven discovery is kind of like, hey, let's instrument the world and see what pops up. And it might come from very strange places. And I think that was sort of the idea of, of refocusing in weird places and taking on odd perspectives. You're, you're absolutely right. And often, you know, the hypothesis-driven approach, it converges much too quickly. That it doesn't leave open possibility of new insights for long enough. And, and every chapter in the book, and this is coming from sort of my background in digital, we try and put a digital spin on this. And of course, paying attention used to be very time consuming, right? I mean, Margaret Mead spent, what, six years in Papua New Guinea, right? You know, now you just need to, you need to surf Reddit, right? You know, there's all the Reddit sub-communities out there. You can see whatever interest group you want, sensors. IoT can collect data much more efficiently than anyone else can. So the, the process of observing the world around us is no longer as time-consuming and expensive and complex as it used to be because we have the benefit of these digital tools and technologies. Right. Like I, I, in my class, I often talk about dynamic pricing and, and I ask people like, well, how does Amazon know that price elasticity of demand you know, changes at 6 p.m.? Do they have anthropologists out there in people's houses you know, with clipboards and stuff? It's, no, they, they don't have that. They just run these experiments on, on pricing and kind of see what happens. But they can do it all from headquarters, like from the mothership. It's a whole lot more economical than having your army of anthropologists out, out in the field. But you're talking about the next step, which is levitation. And you said, look in weird places. Use the example of kind of, you know, Lego and Ikea and how they sought out insight from these, I don't know, people that, that they might have thought of as almost um, adversaries, but they ultimately embraced them as intelligence sources. Yeah, I mean, that's right. You can get great insights from how people misuse your products. 
right? I mean, Lego is a great example because it's such a fabulous brand and people love it so much that people are making their own Lego sets. And Lego can take one approach, which is get the lawyers on them because that's that's non-compliant and they're making guns out of things and Lego doesn't have guns, you know, or they could see it, you know, treat it as a learning opportunity. And and I think that's what they're trying to do. And, and the L, you know, the L is a fun one. The L is a fun one. It's also a bit counterintuitive. This idea of levitating. And levitating is all about, you talked about zoom in, zoom out before. It's about about time out and time off. We just do not give our minds enough time to disengage. I'll ask the question, an open question all your listeners can think about as they're, as they're listening to this. You know, how many of you take your phones into the toilet with you? It's probably a shockingly high number. You don't, we don't even give ourselves those two and a half minutes of time for our mind just to reflect. And the science is very clear on this. A mind that is not at rest, right? It, it, if you're not specifically focused on a thing, your mind just kind of wants, your mind is working hard. It's, it's working as hard as if you were focused on a key problem. And we don't give ourselves that time anymore. So part of the creative innovative process is giving your mind time to reflect on things that it's seen, make connections. And one of the reasons why we're not being as creative and innovative as we should be is because we just don't allow ourselves to do that. So I think it was Einstein who said creativity is the residue of time wasted. And it's a great quote. I hope he said it. I really do. Because it's a great quote. And I think it's absolutely true. It's absolutely true. We don't give ourselves the time we need to reflect. So also procrastination is not necessarily a bad thing. For all of you procrastinators out there, don't beat yourself up about it. You know, some of the most innovative, creative thinkers out there were terrible procrastinators because it gives your mind time to reflect and put all the pieces together. Yeah, I mean, if, if you're as an economist, you might imagine that there's a, a frontier where one axis is on the kind of you know noticing, and the other is on the reflecting. I think you defined kind of levitation as stop noticing, or at least stop doing what you're doing in the attention phase, and allow this kind of default mode network to to kick in. But I think Einstein, when he made that remark, this was you know before the iPhone, because yeah, when you talk about time wasted. There's different types of wasted time, I think, as you point out, right? And if you find yourself going down this, you know, rabbit hole of digital stimulation and kind of, you know, hitting the, the dopamine lever repeatedly, and then you lift your head up and you realize that two hours was just sucked away, that's the kind of time wasting that probably will not result in any kind of insight. You know, you have to be intentional about your time wasting if you want to both suppress the, the monkey mind and not allow the the emptiness to be filled with, I think you, you mentioned both this digital stimulation and also echo chamber as bad time wasting. Yeah, just a very practical tip, a very practical trick that very few people do is block time in your calendar to do nothing, right? Just put an hour or two hours a week and, you know, use that time to reflect. Also, what I do is because I'm busy and you're busy and everyone's busy, you know, as I see things that I think might be interesting during the week, I'll just throw them in a folder and then during that time, which I blocked in my calendar, you know, I just kind of wade through it and, you know, see if anything jumps out. And having the time to do that is a real, is a real luxury. And we don't give ourselves enough time, I think, to reflect. And that's, that's why the levitation piece is so important. In the DevOps literature, they have this whole time audit thing where, you know, there's planned work and then there's unplanned work and then there's 
strategic thinking, reflective. I use this a lot in my teaching. I encourage people to, you know, do a time audit. And usually what, what most people do is they fill their calendar to the brim. And then as soon as it's full, you know, Zoom call after Zoom call after Zoom call, then all of a sudden, you know, all this stuff shows up, <laughs> like somebody quit, product didn't work, customer left, et cetera. And so even if they intended to have some time for strategic thinking, it just gets squeezed out if you don't have kind of some discipline about it. I'm wondering if, if you think that, you know, the move to remote has actually kind of harmed this process because you mentioned that commuting, right? You know, when you're in the car driving, it's kind of mindless. That might be a time when people can, you know, come up with good insight. The shower, people probably shower less because you know, they're at home. They don't have to go to work. So they, nobody knows that they haven't showered. I think you're right. And I think there's two reasons why the current, you know, remote work environment is not conducive to levitation. And the first one is what you mentioned was spending less time commuting. And commuting is great for kind of le levitative activity because if you're driving, you're sort of part of your mind is focused, which means the rest of it is just, is just, you know, off doing whatever. And so we have, you have less time like that, but also during the day, we don't have unstructured time with others where we're getting inspiration because everything is programmed. And, and so you have a meeting and it's, it's an hour or it's 30 minutes and you fill the time, and then you're done. There's none of that, you know, 10 minutes before we meet and then we start chatting and then something happened. It's kind of interesting and unexpected. There's no time after when we're walking around or going to the coffee machine. We don't get that time anymore. So I think that also hurts our ability to be creative. And true enough, I think, you know, of all the benefits of working from home, I don't think it necessarily supports creativity or innovation. Now you mentioned also walking and for centuries, walking has been an activity that has inspired artists and, and scientists. And, you know, in Silicon Valley, there are some people like, you know, Mark Zuckerberg and uh, Steve Jobs who would have these kind of walking meetings. I think nowadays when I see people walking on the you know fire trails behind my house in Berkeley, about half of them are looking at their phone while they're while, while they're walking, which is probably defeats the purpose somewhat. But you mentioned that in speculation that people with ADHD or diagnosed with ADHD may be more creative, and and maybe by forcing them into the the box of you know mainstream focal activity, it could suppress you know the creativity that might otherwise arise. Do, do you think that, you know, people need to have a better sense of where their kind of creativity comes from and, and where their insight comes from so that they can be disciplined about channeling it? I think so. Yes. And that moves us into the I territory, which is imagination. And I think that imagination is something that we don't practice enough. We don't spend enough time on. We lose in fact, through our lifetime, we don't lose the ability to be imaginative, but we lose the, I don't know, the practice of doing it. You know, all kids are imaginative. They have great imaginations, but, you know, life tends to beat it out of us. School beats it out of us. Our careers beat it out of us. And eventually there's not much left. I think it was George Bernard Shaw who said, we don't stop playing because we grow old. We grow old because we stop playing. And so having that kind of playfulness, that playful mindset, keeping that around as much as possible, being goofy, it's kind of seen as being negative, but it's great. You put two things together that shouldn't be put together and you see what happens. You know, you try and have, you have fun in the middle of the day when you're at work. Those are great opportunities to spark innovative ideas and innovative conversations. But for some reason, it's just not done very often. It's not seen as uh, appropriate activity.
And so that imagination, which is such an important inspiration for new ideas, and also the combination of ideas, tends not to happen very effectively. And you mentioned deformation professionnelle, right? Which is a, a term, I, I don't think I'd heard this term before, but it's, you know, what happens when you get into, I don't know, the rinse, wash, repeat mode of everyday living or the, you start viewing the world from the perspective of your occupation, of your profession, of your function, and, and you're unable to view things from a different framework. We all know that's true. Lawyers think alike. IT people, accountants, artists, whatever it is, you tend to conform to this stereotype of how we're supposed to act in whatever profession it is that we have. And again, it's not God-given that it has to be that way. It just, we put ourselves into these pigeonholes. Maybe it's because we're more comfortable there, and that's the expected way of, of acting. But you see very little creativity in in the typical accounting firm. And it's not because accountants aren't naturally creative, I think. Well, there's there's plenty of creative accounting out there. <laughs> you know? Maybe that's a bad example. Lawyers then, they, they just tend to all think the same way. And I think that definitely stifles the imagination. Yeah, I find it interesting. One of the you know well-known experiments that we do or the you know, activities that we do in some of our you know, design thinking classes, the famous marshmallow tower building exercise. And, you know, the results of that, the kindergartners almost always do better than, than the MBAs. And I think that when MBAs see that, it really does shock them. They don't understand how can that be, right? With years and years of education, you know, you do worse than someone with, with less education. And you talk about functional fixedness. And I, I think functional fixedness is just one example of that. You know, the idea that people... They think they know more than they know. Get into this, you know, habit of thinking, which precludes the the curiosity, which would help them to continuously learn. How do you jumpstart that in an organization? You have a couple different ideas. You talk about bringing people together with different perspectives. You talk a bit about what if exercises. This is something that I do in you know, a lot of my executive education, where you know you get people to say, "What would it mean for your company to be, say?" fill in the blank, you know, a software company? What would it mean for your company to be fill in the blank, a service company or whatever? What would that look like? And that kind of, you know, stimulates a bunch of thinking. You, you mentioned the example of the, um, the, the flying donkey. I, I love that one because it kind of unlocks it, metaphorical thinking. Using metaphors unlocks insights that you wouldn't get otherwise. Yeah, that's an example we use in the book where they're, they're trying to get medicine to remote parts of, of Africa, and they just kind of couldn't get them to understand the concept at the time that they were using donkeys to get the medicines, you know, through rivers and muddy paths and what have you. And these medicines were not particularly heavy. So, so the concept was, well, we use drones and they weren't able to get these people to really understand and embrace this idea of drones. It was very foreign to them, very unusual. So, so they just rebranded them as flying donkeys. And then suddenly everybody's, oh, okay, I get it now. The donkeys are flying. And then suddenly, you know, all kinds of doors open to them. And, you know, language matters, right? Language matters. One of the reasons why James Dyson couldn't sell his superior technology was because he marketed to the big vacuum companies as the bagless vacuum cleaner, this, this kind of tornado thing, the bagless vacuum cleaner. And that was, of course, if you're a vacuum company, and you make a huge amount of your revenue and most of your profits from selling bags, you don't want to hear about a bagless vacuum cleaner. So language matters in, in this particular case. And I think, Gregory, we see great opportunities to think differently, which are missed, you know, in the pandemic. I don't know how it is where you are in the Bay Area. Do you have at the moment, at this very moment, are restaurants open where you are? 
today is uh, the day we're recording this is our grand opening day, apparently. So <laughs> I'm, I'm expecting, I mean, restaurants have been open, but I think now that like a lot of the restrictions are going to go away. A lot of the restrictions, maybe, but maybe not all. So, you know, where, where I am in Switzerland, the restaurants are open, but you don't get a menu, you get a QR code. Uh, so you take your phone. And so many of your listeners have done this. You take your phone and you put it up to the QR code. And what do you see on your phone? Every case, every experience I PDF. had in the pandemic, you see a PDF of the menu, right? But it's essentially, you know, a digitized version of the paper menu. Just imagine what you could be providing to the diners, what information you could be providing to the diners, but are not. I mean, okay, let's take the most simple thing. Instead of having just text and, and a price, you could have pictures, right? You could have videos. But not only that, you know, open your mind even more. You could have reviews, comments of other diners who've had the same dish. Ingredient uh, sourcing data. Yeah. Ingredient source. Here's the farm where that beef came from or, or, or whatever it is. You can have all kinds of information about the ingredients and the health benefits and gluten-free and what have you. You could do that. You could have information on the most common item that's that's ordered that day. If they know who you are, they know what you ordered the last time, you get a recommendation. You could see pairings of main courses and appetizers or wines or whatever. If you're, you're on your phone, why not order from the phone? You don't have to go through the awkward process of waiting for the waiter to come. Why not pay on your phone? There's just so many benefits that you could be giving the diners once you have them on a digital device. And yet, PDF on the menu. It's kind of like online education, right? <laughs> Some of uh, our institutions, we, we've kind of just taken what we do in the classroom and kind of drag and dropped it into a different digital format. But there's so much opportunity there to do new things. Absolutely. It's like the first TV was radio with pictures. Literally, they had the radio announcers lined up and there was a, one single camera as they were talking into the microphone. And so, you know, it's this kind of this mindset shift that needs to happen. And it, it's the same with education. It's also the same, I think, Greg, with working from home. If working from home means, you know, now you're doing in your home office, which before you were doing in the office, that's a real missed opportunity for organizations. So you mentioned that you want to differentiate what you're advocating here to promote imagination from typical brainstorming exercises. So right in the design thinking world, you know, we have structured brainstorming exercises. And you argue that oftentimes the way in which we do brainstorming is, is incorrect or inadequate. How would you kind of improve the brainstorming process? Yeah, it, it, it's a great question. And brainstorming can be effective. I've taught brainstorming sessions a bunch of times, and I'm sure you have too. And the truth is that what comes out of those brainstorming sessions almost all the time is underwhelming. <laughs> it's underwhelming. It, it's fun. You get to play with post-it notes and you do all kinds of voting or whatever. But I'm always underwhelmed by the outcome. And I just don't think, first, it's artificial. At the time when you want to use your imagination, you don't have six people around you and a bunch of post-it notes. So it's not like that that convenience. Imagination is something you should be pushing the, the whole time. I also think the brainstorming process converges much too quickly on a particular idea. You've got to keep, you've got to keep all those things around much longer and play with them in your mind before you converge. And that, and that links to the E, which is coming up, which is also, I think, limiting a lot of innovation activities. The way we experiment does not help us. The way we experiment is often about proving or disproving rather than improving. Well, I feel like the brainstorming 
approaches that we use were devised back when experimenting was more expensive, right? So you start with a hundred ideas and like, Hey, let's very quickly get them down to the one, you know, well, let's put a bunch of dots against the one that we're going to actually run a trial on. You know, in today's world, you don't need to just try one, right? You can, you can try many more. And maybe that's why the brainstorming process has to be kind of updated for a world where it's easier to, to test a, a much wider range of ideas. I think you're absolutely right. Yeah, that, that's a great point. Experimentation has traditionally been, and brainstorming, an expensive, time-consuming activity. Now you can quite literally have trial without error, which is a kind of a very cool concept, right? A digital twin allows you to have trial without error. A-B testing, trial without error. So it's a great way now to continuously brainstorm. It's not an episodic event. And the same thing with experimentation. It's not a one-time thing you do in a lab. It's something you're continually doing. So it's like we're using like the clinical trial approach to business when most businesses are not like that. Right? You know, you don't need to go through stage one, stage two, stage three. And then finally, you know, you have this grand release. I mean, you can be, you know, continuously A-B testing pretty much on the margins all the time. And even though we tell our students to think like scientists and we want them to have sort of a, a scientific method to their ideas, right, and not, you know, allow confirmation bias to kick in. You'd argue that the kind of approach to hypothesis testing is far too narrow. It's out of date. I think the whole scientific method is out of date. Well, you know, the scientific method meaning where you come up with a theory and the theory from the theory you drive hypotheses and you collect data and you test the hypotheses and then you find out if it's right or wrong and you're done. You write up your results. It's very inefficient. Right. It's ignoring tons of stuff that could come in that could change the game all the way through, ignoring surprises and you're ignoring the data. Now, you don't really need hypotheses because hypotheses is a shortcut, right? You don't know. So you create a hypothesis shortcut. You're making a best guess and you're formalizing that best guess. Today, you don't need to guess. You just keep listening to the data and analyzing the data and then interesting things come out. In the book, we talk about about falling in love actually, is falling in love, of course, is, is not a very data-driven process, right? It's more of an emotional. And, you know, it's done in very different ways. Uh, and But most people are interested in improving the chances of meeting someone, falling in love, and staying together with them. And what's interesting today is we have all kinds of data about this, and that data comes from dating sites. Because if you go to a dating site, when you sign up, you answer, I don't know, a dozen, two dozen, three dozen, up to a hundred questions. And they use that data to try and match you with somebody who they think might be compatible. And the great thing about dating sites is not only do they have the data, they have the results. They, they can see who stays together and who doesn't. The only problem with the dating sites is that their financial interest is in making sure that you don't get together permanently. <laughs> that is a bit of an issue, right? The, that is a bit of an issue. But you don't want to go too far, right? You've got to have some people that fall in love and stay together and then they tell their friends. But yeah, and, and so we know now, actually, and of course you can you can have all kinds of hypotheses, but the data is very clear. You, uh, do you know what it is? You, the best predictor of couples that staying together? I think it, isn't it common friends? Common friends is, is a common assumption. Attitude about money is a common assumption. Birth order is a common assumption. Family orientation is a, none of those are as strong as what I'm about to tell you from the data. You got to tell me, because if I, if I knew this, I'd probably be married by now. Well, this could be a start of something wonderful for you. So the, the number one predictor, the best predictor is the answer to the question. Do you like horror movies? 
and and it's a positive correlation. So if the answer, if if both partners answer yes, it's good. If both and partners answer no, it's good. If one answers yes and one answers no, that's not good. And you know, a traditional scientific method would say, wait a minute, first it can be. Oh, by the way, first you never make that hypothesis. You never get to that hypothesis. It would be so low on the list of possibilities that you would never get there. And then you drive yourself crazy trying to figure out what theory would predict it. It doesn't matter. If it works, it works, right? The data suggests that. So I think we can have this very, very new and fresh approach to how to do experiments and how to analyze data that can free up our imagination and our creativity, not constrain it. Well, I think I need to find the person whose response is, it depends, because that's usually the response that I give to everything. But, you know, I have some friends that started a um, HR analytics company, and they discovered that the one of the best predictors of employee tenure and productivity was the browser that was used to fill out the job application. And, you know, this was there was no hypothesis here. It was just the data pushed it out. So a lot of people that I've interviewed have been talking about how machine learning can learn from how the human brain works. But I think what, what you're talking about is how the human brain can learn from what machine learning does. You know, we have theoryless machine learning in operation all over the place. But when we default back to our human way of thinking, we want to go into an investigation with hypotheses, right? We're much less comfortable with kind of just wading in without any priors. And, and yet this is how machines are learning. And so maybe we should take a page from, you know, what's going on in machine learning and, and kind of suspend our hypotheses and kind of push them aside a little bit and, and give them a little bit less weight and open ourselves up to kind of hypothesis generation through observation and, and reflection. And by the way, it's not just how machines learn, it's how babies learn. It's how children's learn. It's how we all learn naturally. The whole, the scientific method is an artificial creation and, and, and it served us extremely well for a long time when there was a huge constraint on resources. But that those constraints, because of digital tools and technologies, are freeing us and allowing us to think like we did when we were kids. I mean, babies learn exactly the same way AI systems work. Yeah. I have a colleague who teaches a design thinking class, and, and I, I was teaching the data class, and she used to say, your class is all about the patterns, and, and my class is all about the, the anomalies. And I forget who it was that said that you know every great discovery started with the, um, that's weird, Right. You know, there's some kind of anomaly that pops out and then that leads to curiosity, which then leads to a revision of the model that people were starting off with. That's a very important point. But, um, you know, that's weird. It's a surprise. It's always a surprise and surprises. We need to leverage more that the problem with the normal way we operate is that surprises are variance. And what do you do with variance? You minimize it. Right. Lean. Six Sigma. All this stuff minimizing variance. No, we need to maximize variance if we want to be creative. And so that means going out and pushing the boundaries until you find, you know, resistance, opposition, disagreement. This is part of the, the navigation piece. Actually, it's kind of prior to the navigation piece, right? Navigation is how you deal with that, but discovering where the disagreement is, figuring out where the model breaks down, you know, figuring out where the feedback that's going to be negative and listening to the negative, actually even maybe preferring the negative feedback to the positive feedback. That's certainly what we do in machine learning. We look for error. We try to find out like, where's is, where is the error happening? And then we double down on that and, and try to figure out how to fit a model around the error, right? And I think this is quite similar. It's trying to anticipate the barriers in advance, the blockers. You know, we bring the um, we bring the alien metaphor back in here. Wait, think about all the movies you watched. How often are the aliens the good guys? How often do they win in the end? It's tough being an alien. 
And so you want to be an alien thinker. It's tough. You're, people are going to try and shoot you. And so sometimes you have to go into submarine mode, right? You kind of have to hide a little bit and then you have to prepare. Uh, you know, something that's clear to us after looking and studying innovation for many years is that innovators almost always overestimate the power of their ideas. They hold on to them for too long and they underestimate the strength of resistance they're going to face. And both those things require a lot of navigation. And that's why navigation is really an important part of the model, helping you to anticipate the resistance and proactively deal with it in advance. Yeah, I found that you said spend less time convincing and spend more time motivating. And, you know, I think that in the design thinking world, they talk about, you know, make people think it's their idea, right? And that's part of motivating, figuring out where potential stakeholders are that might support your idea. But I think that people who are really good at the idea generation are often the people who aren't very good at the kind of navigation piece because they're so open to ideas. They're so willing to listen. They're so interested in letting the data speak. They, they kind of assume that everybody else is like that when in fact, very few people are like that. And so they, they have a difficult time kind of relating to the people who are, you know, maybe more entrenched in, in their beliefs. So can you be both a good idea generator and a navigator, or do you need to partner up with someone who's better on that aspect of things? You can, but it's not easy. Uh, so partnering up is really not a bad idea. You know, understanding your own strengths and weaknesses and working with somebody who has complementary strengths and weaknesses. So if you're really good at generating ideas and coming up with hypotheses and prototypes and all that, but you're really not good at managing political environment within organizations, then yeah, you may want to partner with somebody who is and vice versa. And so this is not for sure something you have to do all alone. And I think it's also fair to say that, you know, we've gone through these steps, which are the, the first letters of alien, A-L-I-E-N, but it doesn't mean that it always has to go in that order. In fact, in many, in many cases, it doesn't. You know, you maybe start navigating something and then you get an insight because you're paying attention and, and then suddenly you, you have an experiment, but your imagination kicks in. And, you know, so it can, the flow is not linear, right? So in experimentation stage, you want to argue that the kind of lean startup approach, which I think has been a really fantastic improvement on for so many organizations, right? Thinking lean, understanding, getting out of the building, hypothesis testing and so forth. This has been huge, but I think you, you kind of want to supplement that. You want to add to that, make it a little bit more open and delay the convergence stage. I like how you talked about Frank Gehry and how he operates, which is not letting the idea freeze, leaving it vague. And, and I was talking to someone just recently about how architects work and how when architects draw instead of using software, it kind of allows them to be more creative. It allows them to solve more difficult problems precisely because there's a level of abstraction and vagueness in the drawings that's missing in the software, which you have to has to be very, very real to be even put into the software. For sure. I mean, the, the architectural software will take your curvy lines and they'll straighten them. You know, so if that's not a metaphor for, for reducing creativity, I don't know what is. And, and you're right, Frank Gehry, you know, he, he also, he wants to shock because when people are in shock, they react in interesting, creative ways. So he has these Shrek designs and he knows it's not going to look anything like the final design, but it's going to shock the client. And, and then they kind of open their minds to possibilities that would have been closed otherwise. And so doing that can be very helpful to avoid yourself starting off, as we talked about already, converging too quickly or not letting yourself get out of the box, uh, which so often happens. Organizations are terrible with this, right? That 
there's no incentive to do it. The processes inhibit you from doing it. The culture, typically low risk tolerance cultures lock it. So it's really tough to navigate within a corporate environment if you want to be really creative and innovative. Yeah, and so I'm interested in sort of how the interventions that you guys do that seem to work if you track them going forward. And to use your immune system metaphor, you know, there are a lot of folks there, there's some folks at Stanford that have come up with what they call exposure therapy, right? So people who are allergic to peanuts, you start them off with some, you know, looking at peanuts and then holding peanuts and then, you know, these tiny little peanut fragments and people who are afraid of heights, maybe you have them stand on a brick and then you have them stand, you know, and there's ways that you can actually overcome phobias and there's ways you can overcome autoimmune responses and allergies. Is there a similar metaphor that would work with organizations where you get them more comfortable getting that immune system to slow down its activation? Or is there like a educational steroid that we can give to, to organizations to open them up to more creativity, more idea generation, and you know, more problem solving? It's certainly not easy. I think the... Um Maybe the most effective way to do it is actually to bring in new people. So hire people that are not like you. We often hear that you hire for cultural fit, right? You can train people in all kinds of stuff, but you hire people who are culturally fit with the organization. Uh, the result of that is that everybody's the same, right? So actually hiring for cultural fit, not a great idea if you want to be innovative. So you want people, you got to bring people in that are different and maybe outside the industry. It really doesn't happen as much as it should and keep them, right? So don't, don't either spit them out or infect them so that then they become just like you. So or or, or like in. isolate them, put them in, have a little uh, cyst that forms around them, right? And you throw them out in Silicon Valley and say, "Here, set up a little lab, and we're going to ignore you," or that kind of thing. So that doesn't work either, right? That that's a superficial way to do it, and and it's the same thing, you know. And my core area of digital, you know, just separate digital, put them over there get smart people, give them funding, and they'll do great things. They will. But at some point, they're going to have to come into the back to the mothership. And unless they do, you're not really going to get any fundamental change. And the longer you leave them out there, the harder it is to bring them back. So hybrid mode tends to work best, where they're not fully integrated so that they get infected by the corporate virus and stop being innovative and creative, but they're not way out there either where nobody cares. And they become an interesting irrelevance. So organizationally, bringing new ideas in, bringing new people in and listening to them is a great first step. And so would this mean if you're in, say, the energy business, bring in someone who has a background that's not in the energy business? Or would it mean more like if you're in the finance group, bringing in someone with kind of a marketing background? What, what does it mean to kind of bring in outsiders? How would you classify people as outsiders? People from other countries, people from other backgrounds, maybe people put a lawyer into a, a group of you know software engineers? All of that. But I think it's actually more than that. And, and I'm going to get a little philosophical here. But um, I, I think in the past, I mean, you know, my generation, what you were expected to do was you specialize, you become an expert. So you go to school and you do a master's degree and, and then you learn more and more about whatever it is your thing, you know, your craft. And, and you're the expert. And these are kind of the I people. And the world is full of I people, deep experts in, in whatever it is, right? And they tend to be paid well and they're very valuable and respected. I think in a relatively stable world, the I people have a lot of value. In a fast-changing, unpredictable world, in a 
COVID and a post-COVID world, those I people can easily become anchors that are around your neck. Because whatever it is they're expert in is no longer as important and relevant as it has been in the past. I think in the future, the best employees, and not just for innovation, the best employees for doing whatever it is, are more like T people. So they do have some expertise, but they can also bridge. As you said, they're, maybe they're engineers, but they've worked in product marketing. They understand a bit of analytics. They've done sales. And then eventually you have, I think we're going to see M people, not the band from the 80s, M people. So they have people with multiple areas of expertise that can bridge between them. So when you have the, when the next pandemic comes and you know, you're suddenly going from a peacetime to a wartime orientation, they can switch more easily to do something else. Or maybe it's a national disaster or a political event or whatever it is, because the world's going to get less and less predictable. So you're going to need people who are a lot more able to shift between different areas. And I think by doing that, they're naturally more creative because they have these different inspirations, these different experiences that they're drawing on. So they're coming up with more creative solutions because they're not just thinking in one silo. That makes sense. Yeah, of course. And um, so this means that it's not just about having a, an organization that has a bunch of different people with a bunch of different expertises, right? So if, if you think, you know, an assembly of stars, but rather it's having a bunch of people that all of whom themselves contain, inhabit, and live this way of being both interdisciplinary and alien thinkers. So appreciate it, Michael. This has been super interesting. I really enjoyed the book and uh, look forward to subsequent work. Look forward to seeing the next project. It's really been fun. Yeah, it's a pleasure talking to you and I wish you the very best. I enjoy your podcast. So, so keep doing what you're doing. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com. Thank you.